Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited that you're able to join us today, and I value your time very much. I'd like to invite you to become a follower and supporter of the Growing Band Orchid podcast. Now, I'm sure you already listen to the show, and you've got some friends that are listening as well, and we really, really, really appreciate that. So if you keep that up, that'd be awesome. But we've now started growingband.com, which is a new website for us, and there's lots of ways you can interact with us. You can follow us on social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube by going on growingband.com and clicking on any of those to follow us. You can also find on there now a new merchandise store, which is the Growing Band Director podcast logo and some sayings on lots of different items on there for men and women. And um, there's things from t-shirts and sweatshirts to other clothing and accessories, lots of different options on there with lots of different sizes and colors. Again, a little bit of that money comes back to us at the podcast to help us keep some content going for you. Finally, I'd like to invite you to become a Patreon member. This is a listener-supported show, which means we don't take any ads besides this one. Instead, we rely on listeners like you to keep us going, right? The way to support us um, is by going to growingband.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. And you can choose either $5 a month, $3 a month, and you'll gain access to the episode notes as well as an audio file of every episode we've done. Among other things, this is where you'll find our repertoire list and all the different repertoire podcasts we've done in the past and will do in the future. So whether it's by clicking on Patreon, um, following us on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, um, going to the merchandise store on growingband.com and ordering something for yourself or some family or friends, um, and also sharing the show with some other people, we really, really appreciate you being part of the show. And please reach out at any point. And uh, there's a way to do that on growingband.com as well on the contact us button. Uh, Anyways, let's get to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the Growing Band Director podcast. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Our mission is to share practical advice and explore topics that will help every band director, no matter your experience level, as well as music education students who are working to join us in the coming years. Together, we will discuss many aspects of a well-rounded band program, but most importantly, we will discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs each and every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, you rot. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the Growing Band Director podcast. This is episode number 41 called Creating a Strong Jazz Program, and we have a wonderful guest with us, John Mastriani, today. Um, this is uh, one of our series of jazz podcasts that we've had. Um, if you listen back to episode one, Jeff and I opined about many things jazz ensemble for, for quite a, a long time. In episode 18, we had Barry Saunders talking about improvisation. Episode 25 was with Craig Skeffington. Episode 28, we had Mike Sakash, who taught us how to improvise and uh, learn a tune. He used summertime. And then episode 33, we had with Mick, Nick Manella, who is of the 10-Minute Jazz Lesson podcast. So uh, really excited to have Jeff and John here. Uh, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. What an uh, illustrious group of predecessors that uh, you named before, uh, before this event. So I'm uh, I'm extra humbled and honored to uh, be here with you guys tonight. Jeff, you're the one who introduced me to John. So could you tell the audience a little bit about why John is such a special teacher and why he should be on this podcast? Well, if we look at everything that John's done, like he's uh, won countless awards. He was the 2014 Connecticut Teacher of the Year. 
the 2021 UConn Undergraduate Faculty Mentor of the Year, a three-time Grammy-nominated teacher. He is also the presently the Assistant Professor of Residence of Jazz Studies at UConn, the Associate Head of Undergraduate Studies, and he'll be also your 2023 Maine All-State Honors Jazz Band. I got to meet John many years ago in the 80s when John was student teaching, and I've had the luxury of watching John teach so many groups. I, I remember he first started at Bridgeport Central High School as the band director there, and he built that into a huge program. Then he went to Canaan High School, and he did the same thing there. And then he went to Hall High School and did a fabulous job. And then he went to Canton for a short period of time before he retired from public school teaching, then to UConn. Every program that John's touched has improved dramatically. But more importantly, uh, many of my students studied in his summer improvisational camp in Stanford for, yep. I think it was like 20 some odd years. And every summer I sent a group of kids there and I knew when they came back, they were a better person and a better musician because of John and the other folks that were there. So John, you uh, feeling better about yourself now? Now the Wow, I'll you tell up. you. <laughs> and uh, Jeff has always said about you that the, one of the reasons you were successful among many other things is that you believed in a really well-balanced program where there was a jazz, a strong jazz program, but it didn't overtake everything else. So I know that's going to be a topic of our discussion today. Um, could you start Absolutely. with maybe, maybe, uh, you know, some of your history, I know Jeff gave, gave a lot of it. Um, you don't have as much history as Jeff, but we all, none of us have as much history as Jeff. And, uh, that's, that was for laugh. Yeah. Um, so can you tell, tell us a little bit about your history, but, but also about your philosophy of how you decided to build those programs and start those programs and things like that. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Jeff. I don't know if I can live up to that uh, introduction, but uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I've had you know the, an, an interesting teaching career to say the uh, least, but a very fruitful one, and um, you know, thankfully, have some good longevity in this profession. I'm a first year teacher this year um, for the forty first time, mm -hmm. so uh, awesome. and that's that's, awesome. that's that's the way I approach really every year and anywhere I, I am, you know, my high school band director, um, God rest his soul, you know, my Mr. M, he told me before I was about to become a teacher, he said, now listen, he said, you make sure that you teach for 35 years, don't teach the same year 35 times. Mm -hmm. So um, if it's one thing I learned, it's that, you know, you kind of have to make adjustments, depending on where you are. So I started out in the inner city, in the high school that I went to, so talk about bizarre. So four years after I left, I walked into the high school and, and the supervisor said, who was my high school band director, said, well, the guy who's at the high school is kind of having like a nervous breakdown. He said, would you like to be the high school band director? <laughs> and of course, it was, uh, uh, what did you just say? You know, and I mean, I didn't really know squat about marching band as much as I should, you know, and, and you know, when you're a first year teacher, you, you well, most of us don't realize that it's okay not to know everything. You know, it's mm -hmm. impossible to not know everything. So I started out and the program had 27 kids in it. And I mean, I was their, their father in some cases, their social worker, their doctor, their guardian, you know, you, you name it. I mean, it was, you know, some kids who were more well off and then some kids who were really troubled, you know, and lived in the housing projects in uh, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I'll tell you to this day, they are some of the most beautiful people that I've that I've ever met. And and we had 
an amazing relationship, you know, and first, first and foremost, you know, I think I had to make them realize that sure, I'm their teacher, I'm going to have high expectations, like I always do, but I'm also there, I'm their friend, I'm going to help them, I'm going to guide them, and I'm going to teach them how to be great, you know, please come along with me on this journey. And, um, you know, they drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So in a town like that, if I had marching band rehearsal on Columbus Day, for instance, I was keeping them off the street. I mean, that was really, it was a, a much different animal, you know. So from there, I went to New Canaan, which is one of the wealthiest communities in Connecticut. So, but that's a whole different animal in itself. It was a, it was a jock town. You know, they're really, I mean, they built like this football field that you won't believe. And they were really intense with the whole sports thing. And I was the fourth band director in three years. Mm. So after I stayed there one year, the kids were joking and say, hey, Mr. M, where are you going next year? And I said, no, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. And I stayed 10 years. And by the way, I, st I was six years um, in Bridgeport, in my old, my old hometown. But there, same thing. There were 20 something kids left in the band, right? So the assistant principal pulled me aside and said, you know, there's three things that everyone does in, in New Canaan. You know, they all play interscholastic sports. They all do Walter Shock, this big dance company, you know, and most of them are in AP honors classes and they're all going to go to all these. He says, if you don't mess with those things, you can have a successful program. So, you know, I think this is a lesson too, especially for young teachers, you know, like, sure, you know, we all think this is the most important thing there is, like, right? Every, I mean, every teacher should think that about their subject. But, you know, my ego is not as such, thank goodness, where I'm like, oh, really? Oh, forget it. I, I can't stand this. So I worked within the parameters of, of what was what was given to me. And 10 years later, there were almost 200 kids in the band. Amazing. You know, I had a good majority of the school in the band. And you talk about adjusting to your surroundings you know jeff will especially appreciate this as a, as a clarinetist but um so there were the, these these two kids that they weren't on the basketball team in the band so they said mr rem we'll get there as fast as we can it was like a playoff game or something and we had like our spring concert at eight o'clock they come running like maniacs it's like two minutes to eight and they're in their basketball uniforms and you know and all that we're like we're, we're so sorry we're, we'll go change right now but i said wait 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 no I said, wait a minute, just, just stay right here. You know, they had their clarinets, they had their music. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I want you to walk onto the stage just like that. And I want you to get, you know, one of them was that was actually the concert mistress, you know? So I said, you know, you, you give the tuning note, you, you give the tuning note, like dress like that. And I'll tell you, as stupid as this sounds, like I, I was a hero, yep. you know, it was like now, Sure, the rest of the band was dressed in tuxes, you know, like a tux shirt and a bow tie and all that kind of stuff, right? So, but I was a hero because I I, I let the situation, you know, I didn't get so stuck up on myself, so to speak, where it was like, oh, I'm not even letting them on the stage, forget it, you know, they're not dressed properly, et cetera. And it turned into a beautiful moment. So that, that was a, a great thing. And then as Jeff mentioned, I went to Hall High School, which is one of the best jazz programs in the country, historically has been for many, many years. But I walked into there and I had the opposite problem. I teased at parents night when I met the parents, I said, this is great. I walk into this school, I got nowhere to go, but down, you know, I really have to, so right, I have to prove myself and, and do some good, good stuff here. But 
Um, as you mentioned about the balance of the program, you know, which is obviously the, the, the probably the main gist of our conversation this evening. But one of the things I tried to do at Hall was to work really, really, really hard to get the concert band, the symphonic band program to be. And, you know, I hate the word equal stature, but to be important, just like the jazz program was and and to try to make everything of, of equal importance, because it is pretty crucial to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And then when I went there, left there and went to Canton High School for four years, I was the department head, K-12, and I was the band director as well. So it was a beautiful opportunity to kind of nurture a whole program town wide, as opposed to, um, you know, just teaching, which of course is a great thing, but I got to teach 60%. And I did that 40%. I, I have no desire to be an administrator, you know, full time. Mm -hmm. So that was a whole different gig. And and the same thing, you know, that was kind of trying to strike a balance between the, the two pro, the, the all the idioms and, and to make them equal and to get them going on equal planes. And then four years and then I left and I was fortunate enough to get the position at, at UConn, which has kind of been a a dream job hope, you know, for, for many, many years, you know, I love teaching music at the highest possible level. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that in the high schools I was in, but now it's really, it's fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm going along and, and doing my thing. So, but, and, and so much of what I did back then has of course shaped who I am right now. So it's, it's been a, a tremendous blessing. Well, I, I think you're a little I think you're a little humble in the fact that when you talk about Canton, you came, if I'm not mistaken, you came into Canton, who didn't have much of a jazz program. And in the first year, Canton High School Jazz Ensemble was a Berkeley finalist, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, we won Berkeley that year when when we went and, you know, they had a, a decent jazz program. I mean, my, my predecessor definitely, you know, did a good job and he had the program going same thing on all, all cylinders, kind of, you know, but um, obviously I was more of a jazz. I had more jazz expertise, you know, so I could hopefully take a group like that to the to the next level. And I, I would like to think like I feel like I did that in the in the years that I was there. And but, you know, it's a, a whole different animal to talk about adapting like at, at, in West Hartford at Hall. We rehearsed five days a week during the school day, plus three hours on a Tuesday evening. In Canton, I rehearsed once a week for two hours. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk later about how we make some stuff like that work because I know you have some questions about that. So, but yeah, so, so I had a thought because you just mentioned you came in and you were more of a jazz player than your predecessor. Yeah. Right. There's there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast, I think, who would not consider themselves strong jazz teachers because they were not jazz players, right? Yeah. Um, can we start with that? Like whether or not you have some basic conceptual things or some basic attitude things about what makes somebody who's not yet as strong jazz player or didn't play in jazz band when they were younger, you know, how can those teachers really become the best jazz teachers they can? Sure. That's a great question. Well, I hope now that the universities are providing good experiences and are able to at least give the teachers a good start when they get out of school. I know we're certainly trying to do that at UConn and I know, I hope other universities are doing as well. But um, I'll give you an example, an analogy like, you know, Jeff. So, I mean, Jeff Smith is responsible so much for who I am today as a person, as a teacher. Jeff was my mentor teacher and he didn't even give me 20 bucks to say this. I'm saying this of my own free will. Mm -hmm. But um, no, really, I mean, and watching Jeff run his his program, I mean, his program was 
firing on all all cylinders you know and although jeff has had lots of jazz experience he he's not a jazz musician you know um and doesn't go out and play small group gigs or anything like that you know or i don't know maybe he is doing that now in his life of leisure but um in huh. any, yeah some life of leisure right you're busier now than when you were teaching um yeah, but, but he's got a boat event, he's got a boat yeah, so, both, that's right. <laughs> so yeah so there, there's a couple different things that you can do so it starts with school right so and the reason I mentioned, you know, having Jeff as a mentor is I used to watch Jeff's marching band and I really had minimal marching band experience when I got out of college. I mean, the, they taught the old Randy Moffat system. No one even knows who that is anymore. Right. It, it, it's but anyway, not all these funky drills and stuff and all that. So I had to go out and I had to seek out a friend who was a big drum corps guy and he wrote the show for me. He helped me. And I learned. I like I learned more and more. I still went back and watched Jeff's marching band rehearsals after I finished student teaching. And I was already a couple of years in. And, you know, and Jeff's kids always made the Bridgeport kids feel so great. Oh, my gosh. When we walked into their competition, it was like royalty walked in. You know, they were so appreciative of what those kids were were able to do. So, in the jazz idiom, I, I, I would do the same thing. I, I would encourage um, teachers. And again, going back to what I said earlier, you can't know everything when you start teaching. So go out and seek some advice from some people who are experts in the field and really know what they're doing. So someone just emailed me the other day and who's a, a novice jazz person. And now all of a sudden they're in front of a high school jazz band. So sent me an email and said, Hey, John, are these some good tunes to start? Like what, what, what should I start with? You know? And I was suggesting like some blues and some modal tunes and things that are not overly complicated. So the kids could improvise on them and be successful and that type of thing. And then the other thing is there are so many resources this day and age, right? Between the Jamie Abersold stuff and, and uh, you know, iReal Pro and all of these just learnjazzstandards.com. It goes on and on and on where people can get up and 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 they can do it. You know, like it's, it's really amazing. So um, I love to teach classes and workshops. And I, I did it at, at the CMEA Festival last year, like a a workshop like like anyone can improvise you know beginning improvising for for anybody who's never done it before because that's the scariest thing they say okay well i don't know anything about improvising how, how do i start so um i have some views about that as well but in terms of just if you're going into teaching no matter what it is i don't care if it's the jazz idiom i don't care if it's marching band i don't care if it's symphonic band get as much information as you can go out and seek help from the people who are masters and what they do become inspired by them and believe me all of a sudden you'll learn and you'll get better and better and better at it as you move along there's a quote from a friend of mine who i know you know um tom lazat oh, who, who, who for decades has told me the jazz ensemble is just concert band with a rhythm section yeah so, so if you can master how to teach rhythm section and you can master the style required of the horn section right right exactly Right, exactly. And that and that's really true. And talk about a brilliant educator. I love Tom. I get to see Tom, uh, fortunately, periodically, because we judge a lot together and, mm -hmm. and clinic bands and that, that kind of thing. So uh, I, I just have the greatest admiration and respect for him. But yeah, that, that's exactly true. And, and the rhythm section is a whole separate animal in itself. But even that, you start with, here's, here's really simple, right? So if you teach the pianist the Charleston rhythm, 
right? Say, okay, play buck, 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 like that rhythm. If you're playing on a, a swing, play that rhythm. Okay. If you teach the bass player, let's say the bass player knows nothing. Okay. So just play roots and fifths, right? Root, root, fifth, fifth, root, root on every chord. Mm -hmm. Then other stuff will come later, right? In, in between the guitar player, right? After you get them to turn the amp down and after you take all the treble off and, you know, all that kind of stuff and try to get some semblance of a jazz guitar sound. Wait, you don't detect any sarcasm in my voice, do you? None, no, zero. no, not, none whatsoever. But, but seriously, once you kind of get that happening, teach them the Freddie Green thing, you know, teach them at least how to play four quarter notes, and teach them how to do that. And then the drums get every limb going, right? You know what the ride cymbal does. You know what the hi-hat does, et cetera, the bass drum. And getting them to play the bass drum very lightly, as we refer to as feathering the bass drum in the jazz idiom. If you could get them to do that and then even play on the snare drum, you know, dang, dang, ga-dang, click, ga-dang, dang, ga-dang, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Already you've got the basis for a really basic swim beat. And believe me, I have been at like summer camps and places where they put some kid in the jazz band who's never played jazz drums before. And I find myself, okay, here's what you are going to do with every limb. And then I tell them just what I told you and get them to do. All right, just keep doing that. You know, and maybe by the end of the week, it'll turn into something a little more complicated, but really it's, it's not, as overwhelming as people think it is. So what do you have them do with what do you have them do with the bass drum? Oh, uh, all four beats, feather it very feather lightly. It. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's hard, you know, because they want to go do, 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 and hit it too hard. So, but you just get them to feather it very, very lightly. So that's that's what I would try to get. And when to. you have the kid, the piano players play the Charleston rhythm, do you have them play the full chord or just the guy tones third and seventh? Or what do you depends on their level of experience yep. so if you start out with a root in the left hand and a third in the seventh and the right hand as you guys know that's more than enough to give you the sonority of the chord and quality of the chord but then if they can graduate to some rootless voicings that's even all all the better but that's stuff that builds over time like i have all kinds of materials of piano voicings that i give out the kids and I make them learn a couple face basic voicings and it basically gets them through everything that they they need to know and the same thing with the guitar players you know because and by the way one thing that's really really important since we're talking about the rhythm section is you have to get the guitar player out of the piano player's airspace so if the pianist is playing in the middle of the instrument maybe you get the guitar up on a little bit on the higher end of the instrument so that it there they don't crash you know it doesn't sound like a traffic jam on fifth avenue so um that that that's really important and if you start out with, with those things all of a sudden you have what is the basis and and you've laid the groundwork for what's going to be a really good rhythm section if they just continue from there and as far as the the origin of the rhythm section i was always taught it goes back to the basie band the four members of the basie band and that's sort of where to study right yeah i mean you know it goes back before then of course but Kyle, you're absolutely right. The advent of the modern day rhythm section, basically rhythm sections play the way they play today because of Count Basie's rhythm section. So that would be, if I had to pick one band that all kids should listen to first, which is very difficult, I'd pick Count Basie. It's the most accessible. They, they swing really hard and, and the kids can really pick up what they're doing. So, which is great. Can I throw a curveball? Uh, in Please. Connecticut, there... Back when I was in Connecticut, we did tons of different festivals at all different schools. 
Yeah. And the com com comment that always came up as it referred to the ribbon section was where to place the bass player, where to where to place the drummer, where to put the guitar player, and where to put the pianist. Could you give us your ideal setup for a rhythm section? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is an easy one as far as I'm concerned. Well, first of all, the guitar player goes in the front row with the saxophone section. So the guitar player goes on the end of the saxophone section. The drums goes even with the trombone row. So the trombone two player doesn't like it, but that symbol is right <laughs> next to it, you know, right there. And then the bass player goes right next to the drummer in the crook of the piano. So that's my ideal setup for a rhythm section. And a couple pet peeves, I cannot stand when the drums are like behind the trumpets or like even farther back than the trumpet roll. And then worse than that, people put the bass player behind the drummer. So it's like, he's in a different, they have to be able to communicate musically, visually. So they have to be able to see each other. So I'm insistent. And then Kyle, you'll probably notice this in two minutes when I come up there that I will make sure that the rhythm section sets up like that. And I never let them do it any other way. And to me, that maximizes their performance. Well, we will ensure that that happens before you really <laughs> have to say anything. <laughs> Thank and you. Since you're a graduate, your undergraduate degree was University of Bridgeport. This is another thing in setup of jazz ensemble that always comes back and forth. If I recall with UB, they put the Barry sax player next to the guitar player. And then later on, they moved it over to the far left side. So where do you typically put your Barry sax player? I like the Barry sax and the bass bone. Um, as if you're directing the band and you're looking at the band, I like them to the right. Yeah. Um, yeah, the bass bone. So I, I like it for a couple different reasons, because I like the stereo of the bass player being with the rhythm section and, you know, sometimes the left hand of the piano and then the Barry and the bass bone. It kind of creates a nice sound in the band. And remember that a lot of the impetus from that comes from the fact that the jazz tenor chair, you want to put the first player on that end so they're closest to the rhythm section. That's usually not off, not always, but it's the strongest jazz player in the band. So they're playing that lead tenor chair. And I like the brass section, again, as I'm staring at the, at the band, as if I was directing, if I'm staring at the band, I like the trumpets and trombones to go two, one, three, four. So that's the, the order. So the lead players are lined up in the middle for obvious reasons. You know, the lead altos in the middle of the section and the lead trumpet is behind that. But um, as you're looking at them from left to right, they go two, one, three, four. To me, I, I like that the way the band sounds the best that way. And I still set up my jazz ensemble like that. So when you have stylistically, so you got jazz band set up and they're really going strong. And now it's concert band time. And those same horn players are in concert band and you're conducting going along and they start swinging the eighths in concert band on a, on a Susan Marshall, just take for example. And uh, I know how you'll deal with it, but getting them to understand that there's different styles. So I take you as an example, you've played with the Hartford symphony orchestra. You've played at the Bushnell in pit orchestras and pit orchestras all over. You've played down in New York all over the place. So you play every different style. Do you think, do you have trouble getting kids that think they are in quote jazzers in high school 
to understand that they need to be a much more versatile player to understand all styles? So that's a great question. So, um, yeah. So first of all, I, I make them understand one thing that like any group I'm in, I'm in front of, like we all want all our wishes, teachers, we want them to be excellent. Students crave excellence and they will gravitate towards something that was, that's excellent. And they will make concessions and give up things and go the extra mile because that is cool. That is a great sounding group. They're really doing the right thing. So I operate basically by that, by that principle. Um, and now being a college professor, right, my kind of job has shifted from getting students to be college ready to now get students to be career ready. So that's, that's my job, right? I mean, so if you're in my saxophone studio, you are not walking out of UConn without playing some classical repertoire and without learning how to double. You're not because I tell, I said, you want to know what, all right. I, I played um, Jelly's last jam over the weekend. Jeff, you would have loved these clarinet parts, but I, I said, you know what I played? I played alto, soprano, clarinet, and flute. That's what I had. To, that's what I had to bring with me. Right. So you mentioned the Bushnell. I'm playing Mean Girls next week at the at the Bushnell. So I'm playing alto, soprano, clarinet, flute, and piccolo. You know, and then sometimes I walk somewhere and I could just have an, an alto. So that versatility is is absolutely essential. And even for a high school student, like you realize this is a great experience for you to be playing a Sousa March and then go into jazz ensemble and play a bassy chart or play whatever. I mean, you are just making yourself more rounded, well-rounded as a musician, and it's widening and broadening your, broadening your perspectives and your experience. So I, I think those are crucial things. So do you think a high school kid should specialize in jazz ensemble or contraband, or just as you said, be broader in breadth of their playing skills? Yeah, I think in some cases it depends on the um, instrument that they play. You know, like um, if there are French horns and there are sometimes you don't really have use for French horns in a jazz ensemble if you're doing the traditional jazz ensemble. And we can get into a whole thing about that, too, which I won't I won't touch that at the moment. So I'll just assume we're talking about a traditional jazz ensemble. Those students will probably be you know, pretty much in the symphonic, but see, even those students, I would, I would encourage them, like, you know, you should really do orchestra as well as band. That's a whole other experience. So the short answer to your question, um, Jeff, is I'm a, I'm a great believer in the breadth and scope of, of learning and, uh, and experiences and, and all that. And this isn't any false humility on my part, you know, really it's not, I, I'm sure I'm not the best doubler on the planet, you know, I'm sure I'm not the just best jazz player on the planet. I'm sure I'm not the best teacher on the planet. But I will assure you of one thing, that whoever hires me to do anything, I'll I'll give them my right arm, whatever, my left arm, say, how do you want, you know, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to play? And all that stuff. Over the past weekend, I wasn't too cool to play the wide, fast vibrato from the 1920s, playing all that beautiful music from Jelly Roll Morton. In fact, I love doing that, Okay. And I'm not patting myself on the back, but you know what? Most guys, they wouldn't do it. They're too cool to do that. So yeah. I'm never too cool to play the gig. And that's that's something I, I try to you know teach students all the time, regardless of high school, college, wherever. 
so John, you touched recently on um, how kids just want to be part of something excellent. Yes. Right. It doesn't, it sometimes doesn't matter what it is. We just had an episode with Andy and Lindsay boys and he, and Andy said the same thing. It's just, it's all about, you know, it, the kids want to make it good. Right. And that's yeah. what it's all about. To me, that's a big part of the culture of the band. Yes. Um, you know, creating a culture. So I'd really like your insight as to, as somebody who's taken over programs, both, you know, smaller programs and bigger programs at every level, you know, obviously besides making it a good quality product, what are some other keys and successes to building a program and changing the culture in that program? So culture, the culture of a program is really everyone's responsibility. Um, I know I was talking to a, a group of teachers recently and um they were they were complaining and they said oh the the culture around here just isn't what it used to be and the question i asked them is well of course the first question i asked is why not and then they really got miffed when i said well whose responsibility is that it's your responsibility to change the culture so um there are a number of ways to do that so first of all um for all the amazing teachers out there kindly tuning into this right you're you have to have, first of all, a thorough knowledge of your subject matter and unbridled enthusiasm and passion. If you have those two things, right away, you're going to have the respect of everyone that you are in front of. So that that is a huge thing right there. They're going to know, wow, this, I mean, this person really cares and he knows what he's talking about and he really cares. So we got to jump on the bandwagon here. So I think that's probably the first and most important thing, I mean, there there are people that can that can make shoveling cow manure sound like it's the greatest thing on the planet, and you actually get excited and respect them because they love it so much. And I always say, I I have this conversation with my son all the time. If someone loves what they do, and they get psyched talking about it and all that, I immediately am drawn to them. I I immediately have respect and am drawn to them. So you have to be able to do that that first so that the that the people that you're in front of know that you're there you have to involve the entire school and the community in what you're doing so by that i mean you you know we have to be our own biggest cheerleaders right i mean it's for better or for worse and for for what we do we have to keep everyone informed so get somebody to talk about stuff the band is doing on the morning announcements those type things, get it in the newspaper in town, et cetera, et cetera. Get a band parents organization. So all of a sudden they're behind and parents love to help. They love to help. And God knows, Jeff, you had an army of band parents when you ran your cavalcade. I mean, I, I didn't think there were anyone left in any houses in Norwalk when you had the cavalcade because <laughs> everyone was either selling burgers, giving out hot chocolate or, you know, carrying the uh, aux percussion equipment onto the field. You know what I mean? So so when you have all of that, it's like complete 100% immersion. So um, here's something I used to do all the time. Early in the year, I did a, a here's where we are now night for the parents. So I'd invite all the jazz ensemble parents in and they could sit in a rehearsal and the kids were mortified because it was like only the, you know, maybe third week of school or something like that. And we'd only have a couple of rehearsals and they didn't sound good on the charts yet and all that. And I'm like, we don't want to, we don't care. This is where you are right now. So now your parents can see what we do, the rehearsal process. I would invite parents in for a day to a concert band rehearsal. And I know that's a little more difficult because it's during the school day and they're working, but 
Um, but it's amazing how many parents showed up and they would sit in the back of the room and and they would watch and and they left and they were fascinated. But I mean, I didn't realize you did all this. I didn't realize you could do all this. So you start doing things like that and you start making well known what you were doing. And and believe me, there's a there's a word that's really important, humility. You have to do it all with humility. You can't do it with arrogance and like you're the only game in town because you'll be run out of town really, really soon. You have to do it all with humility and respect for what's around you. And then people will respect you. But when you get all those things firing, I, I think that's a really uh, a tremendous uh, point of advocacy for creating good culture and programs. Could I add one thing to what you said? Yes. Um, I remember when you did that, because we used to talk about that. And uh, I stole it and used it a little differently. At the end of the year, I take a, concert band concert spring concert and i take the groups and i put double the number of chairs on stage and i'd have them all sit close together and play the few songs and at the very end i'd have an envelope and i'd pass it around to every kid and i said now everybody who has a child on the stage you are to come up and sit next to your child and we're going to sight read this piece the first time through <laughs> and, and, and did that and you know that the kids were like matter than a deuce at me at first but then they came to realize and said you know my mom and dad said a lot of times they didn't know i could read that well and play that well sure. and I think that was the purpose of it, is to show your parents that all these years you've been working that these are the skills you've acquired and you don't you know like at home a lot of kids practice what they can play they don't do that thing where they practice what they can't play right. and then the ones who practice what they can't play the parents are saying you know Susie or Johnny sound sound a little terrible at home. And I said, good, 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 good. Terrible <laughs> starts sounding good. Then they accomplish what they were supposed to be practicing at home. Of course. So uh, I, I think your idea is a fabulous idea where we are early in the year. That that's that's a wonderful idea because that gets people to say, This is where we are, and then to follow it up at the end of the year, and this is where we've come. Yeah. And how we've gotten there. That that's another right. way showing parents how much their kids grew in the program and say, and it's all because of your support that we're here. Right. And, you know, I hope everybody out there understands the townies like to talk. So they're going to go. And that now all of a sudden their friends have little Johnny, who's four years old and whoever, now they're talking about what instruments they're going to play already. Oh my God you should see what's going on in the, in the school, right? And and all that. And one thing that I didn't mention before, um, Kyle, when you were, you know, speaking about a well-rounded program and is I think it's important that each group has a strong identity. So, um, and here's an example. One of the things I did at Hall High School when I said there's this world-renowned jazz program, right? So I started taking the symphonic band on trips as well. I bought, I brought them to, to Disney world, you know, to play in festival Disney. And the first time we went, the symphonic band won the cop. So now, wait a minute. Oh, okay. We got this renowned jazz band, but guess what guys, this concert band, we're pretty hot stuff too. You know, so that spewed like a whole new culture in the school that never existed before. Right. So now the all-state clarinet player or the French horn player or the tuba player or the kid that might not be able to play in the jazz ensemble for whatever reason 
now they look forward to something excellent too as well and we said talk many times already today about breeding excellence but but when each of the group has that identity that's another thing that helps create an amazing culture within your program so you gave us the keys of excellence humility and passion and it's clear john i you know we just officially met today but we've been talking back and forth a while that Another thing that's made you successful is you seem to make it all about the kids all the time. In fact, I was in the principal's office today, just kind of hanging for a minute. And he's like, yep, it's all about the kids, right? I said, yep, that's true. So the fact that you make it all about the kids, I have a quick story to tell. When I was in my first couple of years of teaching, obviously we all have our ideal ideal of what things should be on concert day, right? Well, two kids came up to me um, on the same concert. One was that morning. He said, Mr. Smith, I'm not going to be at the concert tonight. And I just started in on my, you know, well, that's unacceptable. Like, this is a big deal, blah, 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 blah. I didn't ask him what happened. Well, he happened to come out and tell me, well, last night my house burned down. And today we're going to look through all the rubble and see if anything is still oh, there. And I was right. like, okay, right. So I learned that lesson. And then that night, this boy comes in wearing, because we wore white and black, right? Standard white and black. Yeah. He was He was wearing a white tank top, like an undershirt tank top. And he had painted with body paint white as a complete long sleeve oh. shirt on it and he had painted a black tie and i at first was extremely mortified he walks in and he's wearing black jeans or whatever and uh and i and he said mr smith before you say anything you have to know it was this or it was nothing and wow. then it hit me right away that this boy spent hours getting that because that's all he had sure and yep. then my now, if I saw that right away, I would praise that boy right away. And I would when I was younger, it was clearly it was the other way. I had to learn that there is a standard and excellent. But as long as you center it around the kids and you acknowledge the effort they're making, that's right. a big deal. Right. Well, you know, that's why you're a cool dude. You know, that was like kind of a, a, a good analogy to my basketball story, you know, with mm -hmm. the kids coming on stage in their basketball uniform That's they're like wow think of it. yeah mr smith is really cool you know he's he yeah he gets it sometimes things aren't always black and white there's a lot of a lot of gray out there and and he really cares about us on a deeper level beyond what this group is going to sound like so that's cool. and i think i think like you i know you learned it in bridgeport i know i learned it in norwalk and i know kyle's learned it in westbrook that uh we come through kids that have varied backgrounds and we as the teacher need to know their background so that we can make a, a fair evaluation and an adjustment for the kids with the needs that they have or the needs that they don't have and they need to find and uh, I think that's something that as you pointed out before when you're talking to those teachers saying you have it's up to you to change the culture but you as the teacher have to know what the culture is Oh, you know what the needs are of your kids because you can have a kid that lives in new canaan where the per capita income is uh oh two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and you could have a kid living in that same town where parents are day laborers living on the border of norwalk and don't have two pennies to rub together but that kid wants to play an instrument just as bad or more than sure. some of these kids because it's all yeah. they have Right. Yeah, and so that's their life is playing that horn. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, no, that's 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 totally true. And and you brought up um, 
a, a story that sometimes it's weird. We do these things that we don't realize how it hits someone, right? So when I became Connecticut Teacher of the Year, I had all this writing to do. You know, you had like pages and pages and pages of writing about teaching. But I had made a comment about, I never patted myself on the back for how many kids I had in Allstate or anything like that, or who became a fabulous player. Still to this day, I never pat myself. You know what I pat myself on the back for? Is the kid who's sitting in the back last chair or trumpet or something like that, who stayed in band for all four years. And now he sends me messages on Facebook and says, hey, Mr. M, my kid is playing trumpet now, just like I did. And sometimes, you know what? There, there you go. So, and and I often say, you know, I probably have a, a, a different definition of success than most people, but, you know, I think success is waking up excited and going home fulfilled. That's what I think success is. I don't care. You know, yes, I do care that I was teacher of the year and, you know, we've won all these awards and Jeff, so have you and, you know, Kyle, you probably have as well. That's great. That's all fantastic. But the fact that I wake up every day and it's like, man, I'm go, I'm gonna, I'm going to school today to make some music, you know. And then I go home and, and you know, and I'm completely fulfilled. And sometimes I slap myself on the hand and go, John, why did you do that in this class today? Come on, man, what's the matter with you? But then I get up and I go do it better the next day, you know. Like so, that's 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 it's it's simple. So I, I think that's another thing that keeps us going and and keeps nice vitality to the profession and, and what we do and it keeps kids excited too because they see you that way so it's really cool but yeah that, and not, not to not yeah. not to overstate it but the amount of lives that you've probably saved right oh. i mean we've all taught in high-risk towns so oh, yeah. we've all taught in multiple high-risk towns oh my god and you know you don't think of it that way i have a very good friend who's a musician i won't say his name of course who had a teacher who i know and he literally said, yep, if it wasn't for this guy, I would have been on the street doing drugs. Yeah. Right? And now he's got a family. He's got a great life and all this. It's like if it wasn't for X band director and me playing whatever I played, I, I, I would be a drug dealer right now and probably dead. Right. Right. How many how many kids? You know, we don't think of it that way, but like you are doing that. Exactly. There was a um, at a marching band competition, Jeff, this uh, this girl, she was in the color guard. She fainted. You know, and so they brought her to the hospital, you know, and all that. So naturally, after we got all the kids, I drove to the hospital to go, you know, do that. And so her and her mother were in the room and she was fine, thank God. But they were going to keep her overnight for observation. So the girl goes, Mom, can Mr. Mastriani stay with me tonight? Think about that for a minute. I'd be in jail if I did that, you know, but I'm, so here I, what do I do? I, I get in the chair in the hospital room and I'm like, like this, like, you know, sleep. I slept in the chair in the hospital room all night. It's like, she wanted me to stay with her, you know, and her mother asked to, oh, I said, I'll stay. No, no problem. I'd, I'd be happy to stay. And, you know, I was there the next morning when she woke up and I said, you know, and it's those kind of things, you know, and we've all done stuff that is way above and beyond the call of duty because that's what makes us who we are. And we all have those stories, but yeah, but we save lives. We, we know it sounds corny, but when they say we make a difference, you know, it's, it's so true. It's a hundred percent accurate. Well, you said a few minutes ago about the teacher has to have unbridled energy and you are a hundred percent correct. How many times have we talked to colleagues who are saying, how do they change the culture of their program? I'm burnt out. 
uh, I need a break. And and my comment always back has been that, do you love what you're doing? Because you got to have the kids see that you love what you're doing. And you got they've got to see that you love what you're doing from the second you walk into school till that last phone call at night before you go to bed. Right. And that's got it. That energy has to come all the time that, that no matter how old you are, that, that you love what you're doing. And you and I both know there have been many a teacher, whether it be in music or not, has stayed at the cocktail party too long and yeah. didn't leave when they should have. And they become um, resentful, angry, right. et cetera, et cetera. You know, you as a teacher have to decide when enough is enough so that when you leave your program, you leave your program energized, exuberant, and willing to learn. Yes. And I, I think that's an important thing to that unbridled energy that you point out is is the key to changing the culture of a program. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah, no, no question about it. And you know, we all should remember, right? That kids can read us like a book. Mm -hmm. Not only can they read us like a book, but they can read us like a book in a millisecond. <laughs> and so if you're not on your game, you know, we're we're on stage. Here we go. Curtains open. Let's go. <laughs> so they, they will read you like a book and that'll be it. They'll turn you off just like a light switch if you don't do exactly what you're describe, describing, Jeff. So, yes. So here's something you taught me back in the 80s, not the data, but back in the 80s, my friend. And that was <laughs> teaching a novice to improvise. Could you give us some insight into teaching a novice to improvise, please? Absolutely. So, wow, have I gone full circle with this? as an educator. I really have. Like I used to be at jazz camp and, and, you know, I'd be like, okay, today we're going to learn our Mixolydian scales. You know, they go with dominant seventh chords. And then today we're going to be, you know, so, you know, I don't think I've used the term Mixolydian in 20 years. So to, to, to give you an example, you know, like, I don't know now, I think as I get older, you know, like I, I operate uh, you know, the famous kiss principle, keep it stupid, simple, right? So uh, I like to just keep things as sit like, I don't call them mixolydian scales. I call them dominant seventh chord scales. You know, you just make the seventh note lower, et cetera. So just as a, as a precursor. So I used to like everyone else, and I'm not saying that I don't do this, but I used to kind of put a blue scale in front of kids and just say, close your eyes, forget about what chords are. Don't worry about it. Just hear the rhythm track, let the rhythm section play, and just play any of these notes and just fool around and play and all, all that, that type of stuff. So I'm not saying that I no longer do that, right? But I think I've gravitated more toward remembering how this music was passed down as an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. So now when I go do workshops and clinics and all that stuff, I said, okay, can everybody play like a B flat major scale? Yeah, we can. Okay, good. Copy what I play. And I have my saxophone and I just go, bop, bop, dee, dot. Then they copy. And then I go, dot, da, da, do, dot. And then they copy. And we just keep going. And I play little simple little patterns. All right, there's your introduction to transcribing. Okay. There are some of the greatest jazz players in the world who could hardly read music, right? Because they learned how to play from their predecessors and, and that. So, um, uh, of course, I'm not saying that the theory is not important. I don't want to give that impression for even one moment. But when I start kids these days and when schools ask me to come and talk to people about 
begin in, improvising, I start by having the students use their ear. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, oh, I kind of wish I had a horn out now. But anyway, I, I, if I say I bait students like all the time, I'll say, play a B flat major scale, right? Everybody plays it in band. Okay, so they'll go, right? Or if they're high school kids, they'll play it like they play in all state. So then I'll say, okay, I'll play a B flat major scale now. And I might go, bump, da 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 you know, I'll like really like destroy the B flat major scale, but I will play it every pitch and all that kind of stuff. It, it'll be the most creative thing you ever heard in your life. And I said, see, see what you could do with the B flat major scale. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, <laughs> the aha moment, the light bulb mm -hmm. goes off. So in terms of teaching novice improvisers, I, I like to do things like, like that. I think that that turns them on. And sometimes I turn on like a simple Louis Armstrong solo. He was so great because he would play just these riffs and these, like sometimes these patterns over and over. I said, let's copy that. What is it? You know, wow. All right, let's sing it. Let's all copy it. And then, you know, it'll take them a minute, but all of a sudden they're really starting to do it. And they're starting to do it like it was, it was done, you know, like back in the day, of course. So I, I think those are those are good things. And and I have certainly, you know, I don't have anything against passing out a blue scale and then having someone close their eyes and just say, okay, let's see if you can play some nice swing figures. But if I give them some ideas, and if you give them some ideas as a teacher, and I have like a whole sheet that I give out to teachers or some because remember, you asked before, what can you do as a teacher if you don't have experience playing jazz? Okay. So maybe you talk to somebody like people like us who have some experience and say, okay, here's a sheet with some really basic rhythms that you could play on your flute, right? You're a symphonic flute player. You're playing whatever, the local symphony or the local, but you can play all these rhythms for the kids and then they'll play them back to you. You're improvising. All of a sudden you're teaching how to improvise. So I love to do stuff like that. And, and I think it's more pure to this art form and it's a little bit more respectful again on, on how this music was actually passed down from masters to masters, et cetera, et cetera. John, I actually do that a lot in my concert band rehearsals too. When we're learning a scale or whatever, we'll play copy back and forth. I, yeah. I call it, I call it call and copy. Yeah. They're copying me. And then we'll do call and response where they can yeah. play some, something separate. So right. the basic, the basic premise you're getting to is that you're working on their enthusiasm and their confidence, giving them some language before you deal with the third, the theoretical part of it. Right. Um, I, on that side, you talked about, uh, call and response, call and copy a lot. I just, when I met with Nick Manella from the 10 minute jazz podcast, um, he was, he was talking about how he uses nursery rhymes all the time in his improv classes, oh, Cool, when, you know, for kids to learn stuff by ear, pick the nursery rhyme in the key and, and have them do that. So you're right that the oral tradition of copying things by ear is something we don't have our kids do as much in the concert setting. Right. Jazz, jazz is a really great place for us to utilize that. Sure. Yeah, no, no, no question about it. I, I use sometimes what I'll do um, if uh, I'm trying to illustrate what makes jazz different from other kinds of music is I'll play Mary Had a Little Lamb or something. And I'll say, is that jazz? And they go, no. I said, what song was Mary Had a Little? Okay. Now is this jazz? Beep, ba do ba ba da da you know. Oh, okay. Well, how come that's jazz in the previous one? Well, what did I do? And invariably they'll come out, oh, well, you kind of made it swing a little bit. You made the, and all of a sudden they realize the, the difference. So I think those are very effective tools. There's also people who think of themselves as classical teachers. Swing is really just six, eight, right? 
Well, it's the, what I always teach people. Do la do la. If, if you're four four like this, do la do la do la do la do la do la do la. And if you can say that, you get the natural swing. Do da do da do da do da do la do la da. And you have to be careful. Too many times I see people with dotted eighth sixteenth written on the board. Yeah. Of course, you have to correct them. That's like a disaster, you know. So it's not like that at all. It's the triplet, the underlying triplet feel. And again, we can thank Basie for that, especially on his. Uh, you know, slow, slower tunes and that kind of yep. thing. Anyway, you know, so. And, and the only thing that really makes that not swing is if they separate the notes, right? So as long as the notes stay connected. Right, right. And they so play with that. Exactly. So for novice people who are just learning how to play jazz or improvise, you have to make sure that they use the da soft syllable, right? And they don't go ta, 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 because then that'll swing like a brick, right? So as long <laughs> as they're using da and connecting, as you mentioned, then there's a pretty good chance they're going to come out like swinging. So those are good things to start with for sure. But, you know, improvisation, I just want to make this, this comment, even for my college students, you know, they're, it's the hardest thing in the world to teach, man. And I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of theory and, you know, I, I teach them every scale and all that because they have to pass a promotional jury, you know? So, uh, there's have this amazing baritone saxophone player at school that was in my office today for a lay. He was in for his lesson. And I said, look, this semester uh, uh, for you, I am all about tunes, learning repertoire, and we'll explore a lot of different repertoire, transcribing, which he does all the time anyway, and vocabulary. I said, I am into those three. And it's not like we're not going to talk about your sound anymore, or it's not like we're not going to say, you know, because every once in a while I give him these pop quizzes, you know, and I'll say, okay, you know, C7, sharp, nine, sharp, five, play me what goes over that, you know, and I'll, I'll make sure that it's somewhere in the memory banks, you know, but, but yeah, I, I think half of it is like, I want to hand them a pile of CDs and let's like go out into the woods. I said, and just learn all these CDs, learn what's on these CDs and then come back six months later and then we'll talk, you know, but then there's all the, you got jazz trumpet solos.com. You got all these sites, all this stuff. So if you don't use those resources, it's kind of silly, right? But it really is, to me, that balancing act of, of both of those things. And I think both are needed to be successful in improvising and playing jazz. Yeah, there's another scale that was introduced to me a long time ago called the bebop scale. <laughs> yep. Um, so I, I'm going to sound ignorant here. No, not are, at all. Are, are there mul there's multiple bebop scales? Mm-hmm. Because I was taught one that's a major scale, but it has the flat seven and the major seven. Yes. I was also taught is. one that has a major scale, but it's the flat six and the major six. Exactly. Right. So you know the two most common. You're not ignorant at all, Kyle. You got the two most common down. Right. So so the one now, one of the things that you have to do, right? It, so when you start to teach young jazz player scales and all that you have to make them understand the concept kind of of tension and release mm -hmm. so you have to teach them how to play the wrong notes so for instance if i was teaching them how to play a a bebop scale which is one of the first scale that i teach it has chromaticism right so you have to be able to show them that if they play that note in passing it sounds really cool D -da -da, you know sounds really great if they hang on to that not major so seventh it's going to be bad news because it's a dominant seventh chord that they're playing it over right mm -hmm. so yeah it's really and the same thing with the with the major one that you described it sounds really cool if you play it in passing but if you hang on to it 
it's going to be like a, like a mess. So if they start to learn those tension and release little things, it, it's also tremendously helpful. You can also do exercises like, can everybody play a major triad? So if you play a half step below each note of the major triad, da, 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 you know, et cetera, that then there you go. You already have, you've got non-chord tones there. Now try to mix those up with the, with the right notes and see if you can get them to, you know, so, and like you, you made a great point to, before, like, and I, I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I guess I was, but yes, I'm working on their enthusiasm and their confidence, you know? So there's my dear friend, Joe Beck used to say, if you play a wrong note, play it again. Yep. Right? And you got to remember like a good jazz solo is a series of miraculous recoveries. That's what a good jazz solo is. So when you play those clams, <laughs> it's how you recover from them <laughs> that that really makes it. So those are some things that if kids can learn that at a young age, then you got them hooked. It's cool. I remember the first time I was exposed to John Mastriani. I'm sorry. We, that's okay. <laughs> he was a little younger then. And uh, we were doing a piece called Harlem Nocturne. And we had a saxophone soloist who was... Uh, l7 from the from the word l7 and he he said give me an hour with her in the back room and i'll get her to loosen up a little bit and hour later she comes out and we play harlem nocturne and it was like a whole different person and then he, he spent the rest of the class talking to the whole jazz ensemble about harlem nocturne and how you can just make it do this by using tension and release and uh, to this day, I still remember that lecture. That was probably the most enlightening lecture that I had ever listened to that just changed the the, the path of a group in a, in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, so you're, you're dipping into literature a little bit. Let's go the literature route. So, John, we're going to quiz you. Okay. okay. Um, and feel free to pass if you need to. But with all your experience, I'm sure you're okay. How about at the middle school level? You know any great arrangers for middle school jazz bands? So yeah, boy, this is hard. So well, middle school jazz band is probably the you know the farthest away from my. I idiot, know you know, I but know. I have found great charts um, by let's see some some good writers. Um, Larry Neek, I think I found a couple of charts. You know, Dave Bardoon. Some people are are not the highest praise for him, but I've heard a few things of his um, at the middle school level that are that are pretty cool. Um, and I know, um, uh, I don't know if some of them are appropriate for middle school, but Mike Carubia, who was one of my former colleagues and teachers and who passed away not too distant. Yeah. God rest his soul. I, I miss Mike, um, so terribly, but anyway, he, he had a company called smart chart music mm -hmm. and he like has some easier versions of, of some charts by some really great writers, which is, is cool. You know, like a repertoire in general, I look for the good writers, like, but uh, those are, those are a couple anyway for, for middle, middle school. But like I said, that's Roger Holmes. I know has had a couple of nice charts, but I, I can't say I have any good expertise in, in, in there, you know, cause. All right. Well, let's move to the high school level. Yeah. So high school level, I mean, obviously depends on the level of the band, but now, You've got people like Sammy Nestico, of course, and you've got people like Mike Mossman, who are fantastic. Mike Tomorrow is a really wonderful um, arranger who's got really, really great stuff. Mark Taylor, I really love. 
So Matt Harris, I really love. These are all really like terrific writers, mm -hmm. all these guys. And depending on the level of your band, like Mike Mossman has stuff that is pretty easy. You know, he's kind of an expert in the, in the Latin idiom and he's got stuff on all levels. But those guys I know, I always enjoyed playing. And, you know, like we all have, I'm sure you guys have said, okay, no one's getting out of my jazz band unless they play Molten Swing or unless they put, you know what I mean? There are certain pieces just like, maybe don't believe in this or not, but if they're playing in concert band, they're going to read the whole suites or some of them, whatever it is, they're going to play some Susan marches. They're going to do this, that, the other thing. So I think the same holds true in jazz band. So much of my repertoire came from those two things. What do I think is important to teach them like literature wise? And then who are the great arrangers and the writers that I can get that will be really great and representative of this and, and will prov provide and produce high quality music i do want to put a plug in for two of my friends and not because they're my friends craig skeffington is a great writer love um, skeff yeah and, yeah love and, and someone who has written for every level from pro all the way down to beginning jazz band is terry white i was just gonna say you know yeah. terry white so I, and, and i was just on the phone not long ago with terry and and he and tom and i are usually the three of us are together many times judging but yeah those are two great guys and Terry just did the sweetest thing that I have to tell you is funny story. So I, I was commissioned by this band in Connecticut to write him a piece and I did and all that. And then I was helping them with some other music and they, so they were playing a piece of Terry's an arrangement of Terry's of like day in the life of the fool or something. I go, Oh, Terry. I said, geez, I just saw him two weeks ago. We just judged in Massachusetts. They were like, you know, Terry white. Are you kid? They were like, it was like I knew God or something. So you know what I did? I picked up the <laughs> phone and I called them and I put them on speaker. And I said, hey, Terry, it's, it's John. I said, I'm here with a, with a high school band from blah, blah, blah. And they're playing your chart. And they want to say hi to you. And the kids are like, oh, my God, they're like besides themselves. But yes, Terry is, a, is amazing. And he since he sent an autographed picture to the director and a, and a nice note to the band, really a sweetheart sweetheart so anyway but that's um i'm really happy that you mentioned his name and yes absolutely both of those guys so there's, a, there's another good arranger that john will never mention his name is john mastriani <laughs> mcnasty music you know uh one of my favorite pieces that this gentleman arranged was one of the brecker brothers uh uh skunk some skunk funk oh yeah the, the he, john has some really good arrangements too so well thank you thank you and where can they find your arrangements um, all of my stuff is on ejazzlines.com. Um, but see, the problem is, is some arrangements uh, that they won't publish because they, they don't want to get the rights. Mm -hmm. So they'll publish anything that's an original composition, you know, and all that. And most of my stuff, although I am starting to write stuff that is like a grade level down, you know, but most of the writing I did was either for like college or professional bands because, you know, that's what I was involved in most and all that, but now I am starting to write a, a few things that are a little bit easier that high school bands can play and, and all that. So that's been nice to, to do, to do some stuff there. So I'll probably do a couple up at the festival, maybe, you know, so yeah, we'll, we'll see after, you know, we figure that out. So if, if you were talking about Dave Bardoon, you know, he's got that arrangement of grooving hard for an advanced middle school band. Yeah. Really a fantastic piece. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that's why some people, you know, they hear some of these names and they're like, ooh, you know, Dave Bardoon, you know, I mean, Jeff Jarvis has written some good charts and his 
idiom, you know, and all that. I mean, there's so, oh my God, there's so many people we could go on forever, you know. So right. my, my go- just apologies immediately to the hundreds and hundreds of great writers that we left out, you know, but, yes. uh, you know, yes. yeah. And, and I think a lot of our colleagues get, go to J.W. Pepper for their, um, for their sources, but they should think about looking at Kendor yep. or Sierra. Yeah. Uh, Others, but th- those sources, there's some or really jazz lines, jazz lines, lines. jazz lines. They they didn't have that when I was teaching. the The computer was still having a little problem running back then, but <laughs> I had just gotten a cell phone back then, so things were. <laughs> but uh, you know, those are good sources too, and they have lots of recordings online that you can listen to yeah. to see if the charts really fit the needs of your group. Yes. Yep, yep, agreed. I used to stick my nose in every catalog I could find. I never limited to Hal Leonard or whatever, Warner Brothers. I, You name it, I, I, I dove in and found it. And then, of course, I'd start to gravitate to some people that I knew had the best writers, you know, and all that. But I still never rule anyone out. It's just like a kid. Never, right. you know, never give up on any kid and never give up on any people or arrangements or anything like that because you never know what will pop up. That's right. Well, I have to say, I, we started this as a jazz education podcast, but it's sort of been a life as a band director podcast along with that. I was going to ask <laughs> you for some for some final words, but you just said, you know, give us, if I was going to say give some final words, and you just said, what did you say? Um, never give up on a kid. Oh, right? Right? Sure. So we've got just a, a minute or two left. Any final sort of words of wisdom you can impart to future teachers, new teachers, old teachers, all of us? Um, well, I guess maybe one of the most important things I could possibly say is that this is, of course, a journey. It's not a it's not a sprint. And um, I, I think if you keep enjoying the journey and keep things fresh for yourself, like I, I mentioned before, I never teach the same twice. You know, I never see, teach the same course. The, you know, the, I don't teach that the same. I don't teach the same year two times in a row. Um, and I, I like to keep growing as a uh, professionalist and a person. There's a, there's a saying that all of my students get tired of hearing, but I, I say to them that artistry has no finite ending. Like, when can we ever say, wow, man, I played the greatest blues solo. That was, that was it. That was, that was so amazing. Like, I joke with them and say, God willing, I'll be 100 years old in a wheelchair with no teeth and my alto on my lap, still trying to figure out how to play the blues, you know, or try, or whatever. And as I often joke, I've been playing Days of Wine and Roses for maybe 40 years, you know, maybe longer. And I, <laughs> I still can't play it. You know, when I look at it, I say, wow, you know, that and that 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 to me in, in lies the beauty of this all is that we never have the opportunity to get tired or to get like oh man i'm bored with this that that's impossible if you're not if you're not bored with it you know so as far as i'm concerned if you're not growing and going this way all the time as best you can then then you're moving backwards you know that's how i try to operate so it keeps me excited and and looking forward to the next day and uh, and to keep doing this you know and then i can i hope i can keep doing it for a, a long time to come or as as ray crock says when you're green you're growing if you're green <laughs> you're growing and you're ripe you rot so also, also, uh, I like also, it. I like it. Well, John, Mark thank Taylor's you. John, sure. thank you. We are we are up against it. Um, I appreciate you being on so much. It's my pleasure, really. It's, I it's think we great. need to do this again. Well, I would. I'd be. I'd be honored, you know. And if you want to make it 
more specific into you know jazz educate just purely jazz education or jazz improvisation mm -hmm. we can we can easily do that and you know I'd, I'd be happy to get into real specifics and maybe outline some ideas that could help some teachers teach beginning improvisation or or advance doesn't matter you know i, I can great. take it through a few levels but please I, I i'd be honored so uh look forward to seeing you guys in a couple of months up there so yeah all right everybody well thanks very much for listening have a great day we sincerely appreciate you taking your valuable time and listening to the growing band director podcast your students are very lucky to have a band director like you if you have any suggestions for episode topics or think you have an area of expertise to share on a show with us, please reach out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Growing Band Director. See you next week.